needed to look up where we are uh, this morning, the page numbers. Uh, we are in 1216, if you're using your pew Bible. We're beginning a brand new series uh, on the book of Jude this morning. A brand new series that has one verse less than the previous study we've just concluded in John 17. John 17 has 26 verses. Jude has 25 verses. Very similar, of course, in size, but very different in content. Jude is a book uh, often ignored in favor of the surrounding books, namely the three letters of the Apostle John, one of which we are studying, or the first of which we are studying on Wednesday nights, and of course the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible which immediately follows Jude. Now there are a few reasons why I wanted to study and begin this series on the book of Jude this morning. One reason is very practical and that I prefer to do a briefer series again before beginning a longer series, Lord willing, in the early part of next year. Another brief series, like the one in John 17, is best also because you may remember, certainly, that before John 17, we were in Isaiah for quite a long time. And so I think it's helpful, beneficial to the congregation that we do another brief series. Another reason is that I think it will be very helpful for us, very helpful to see the overlap of some of the great themes that we studied in John 17. Those themes will be, I think even this morning, reinforced as we study the opening part of this letter in an introductory way. And that, I believe, is good for us. Uh, Peter was famous for saying, it's no burden for me, he wrote to his readers, that I repeat myself again regarding these things. Jesus himself often repeated himself many times in many ways regarding the teachings that he delivered while he was uh, here on the earth. And so it is good for us to be reminded of those things we can so quickly and easily forget. At the same time, I think it's also good to be reminded that as we rest in the assurance of our salvation, which I hope you gained something of in our study of John 17, that we not become complacent and careless with regard to our duty, as Jude says, to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. That call, that charge by Jude is not given to a small group of men who are charged with preaching and teaching the gospel. It's not given to just the officers of the church. He is writing generally, it's a Catholic epistle, small c, a universal epistle that goes out to the entire church. And so every believer is called to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Now, there are lots of other reasons to preach through Jude and to be very honest with you. It was only this morning that I remembered as I was sitting in my office that this name is the name we gave to our youngest son. And so we gave him this name because the character of the man Jude, as we learn of him in these verses, is what we still long for and desire for our son. He's not yet there, but God is good and there is hope. But it is going to be, as I say this name over and over again, a constant reminder of me of what we desire and long for for our son. There are other reasons, of course, many reasons, 
But one other thing to say as we begin our study this morning, this is the very first time that I have ever preached through the same book in the same church since I've been in ministry. I preached through Jude in 2009. So those of you who were here, perhaps you remember it all. No, you won't. But I hope what will be a very different series, of course, separated by these 12 plus years, will be profitable for each one of us. Because it is a short book, like John 17, one less verse, we're going to read it in its entirety as I ask you to stand and hear God's word. Please stand. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. All flesh, our Father, is indeed like the grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they always fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We thank you, our Father, for your goodness and mercy to us in Jesus. We thank you for the way in which the gospel is so clearly set forth in this small, brief, and overlooked book. And we pray your blessing upon it, our study of it, that you would seal its truths to our hearts and minds. And we ask it for the sake of and with great hope in Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we begin, it's important to note another reason, and I think the main one while we are choosing this study. I hope as I read through it, you sense the urgency, the warning of the Apostle Jude as he warns the early church, calling them to, the sen to sense the dangers that lurk around them, outside of them, and especially within the church. The reference here to those who are shepherds is a reference to those who are within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are those who are really ravenous wolves. And the message of Jude, as you've heard it read, is as much necessary for our day as it was in his. Now, we're quite familiar with the teachings of Jesus and Paul on this matter. As they warned the early church, Jesus, the disciples, and those who would come after him, that there will be those who from within will seek to destroy the church. In fact, so much of the content of the New Testament epistles really has to do with this very thing, this very reality. Whether it be the super apostles of 2 Corinthians, the false apostles of various cities in that time, the Judaizers of the Church of Galatia and other places, they're all the same. They're all rising up from within the church and seeking to steal away, to lead away those who are within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, in Matthew 7, spoke this way, Beware of false prophets, he told his disciples, who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. There's such a dichotomy, a split, a separation between the two. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Paul, not hearing those words personally, but certainly knowing the teachings of our Savior, said this to the elder, uh, elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Therefore, he says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole, the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, he says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then these words, which had to cut them to the core, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert, attentive. These warnings are as important in our day, as I said, as they were in the day in which he wrote. A call to alertness on the part of the church is now as appropriate as ever. One of the best descriptions I remember, and I spoke it in the first sermon years ago that was ever quoted, uh, is one writer who said this, the book of Jude is a book written to a half-asleep church by a wide-awake preacher. A half-asleep church by a wide-awake preacher. We don't want to be a half-asleep church. I want to be a wide-awake preacher. I don't want the church to be half-asleep, lulled into believing and following false teachers who have forsaken the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and have corrupted the doctrines of God's word to the peril of their own souls. The sermon title I chose is intentional because of its author, a brother's urgent message for the church. Of course, Jude, as we'll see in just a few moments, is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, born to Joseph and Mary, and knew Jesus from the earliest of his years. The one very sobering thing that Jude tells us is this. If this was so true in the early church, Jude was likely written as one of the earliest books in the canon, as early, some argue, as 40 AD, which would have been just a few years after the Lord ascended into glory, and as late as sometime in the early 60s AD, then how much more can it be true if this was true for Jude, that churches like ours so many years afterwards would not be struggling with the very same issues. It is urgent for our day. One only need to think of the current issues facing our own denomination that some may view as not as serious as others may view it. It is serious. It's an attack of the very fundamentals of our faith. That debate is ongoing, but it possesses grave potential to divide the entire denomination. Or we can think of a movement that I mentioned to those on Wednesday night, this whole movement of deconstructing one's faith. I was amazed when Isaac was up here recently. He said to me, Dad, I'm amazed at how many of the friends that I knew in high school 
I'm, I'm tracking with and I'm seeing that so many of them are deconstructing their faith. They're deconstructing. I mentioned this on Wednesday in reference to our study in chapter 2 because I think chapter 2 of 1 John verses 15 through 17 gives us the very reason why people deconstruct their faith. It's not because they've done a careful study of God's word. They've looked at the Greek and all the language and they've said, this really can't be true. It's not that at all. You know the answer and so do I. Do not love the world, John says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The answer is easy. They love the world. They love the things of the world. They want what the world offers more than they have ever wanted Christ and what he calls them to. And so they deconstruct and then they teach others. And so much of this is coming from former leaders within the church who were once pastors, faithful teachers of the word of God, now calling others to follow in their way, which we know leads only to death. So this book is ultimately so important for us today. Jude, as I mentioned, is a Catholic epistle, small c, simply meaning universal, like we say in the Apostles' Creed, one holy Catholic universal apostolic church. Jude is a Catholic epistle, one of several, like James, sent not to a specific group of people, uh, a church, one church in particular, like the book of Ephesians or Colossians, which were generally circulated, but this was written generally to the church to be dispersed to all of the churches to whom Jude is writing. One commentator describes the book this way. Jude is finished, he says, with pleasantries. Something required is at hand. Urgency and immediacy move him. In other words, Jude wants contenders, and he wants them now. And with this letter, he means to raise them up. In this sense, Jude's letter reads as though it were written for the church today. All over the world, challenges are on the rise. The persecution of the church and of the faith is growing. In fact, if he were alive in our day, I doubt Jude would change a single word. He would tell us that we live in an hour requiring us to contend for the faith, for the ancient challenges are still being brought against the faith. Another writer, speaking generally of the book, says this, it serves as a warning to every healthy, stable congregation and the Christians of whom they are comprised, calling them to be vigilant so that the blessings they enjoy are not undermined and destroyed without their realizing it. And that's how it happens. It happens before we even realize it. It also serves as an antidote to the kind of error that causes such damage so that when we find ourselves in the midst of it, we have the ability to understand the false teaching and to deal with it. So this is the book we're going to begin studying this morning, and we're doing it by simply looking at really verse 1 and 2, but primarily uh, just those, or really just primarily verse 1. Let me read it again and then look at some things I want us to note this morning. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept 
for Jesus Christ. Now, this brief introduction, uh, I think, gives us several lessons that are important for us to remember as we begin our study. And the first series of lessons I want you to see come from the difficulties of this book. Now, that refers to the whole reading, and I read it in your presence this morning. And there are clearly and have always been difficulties with this book. Some have noted these similarities with Second Peter. In other words... This is not really a book at all. Someone just copied 15 of the 25 verses in Jude are all found in part or full in the book of second Peter. And that has led people to say, who's copying who here? And how does that undermine what we're to understand about this? There are questions. I don't think they're serious, but there are still questions in people's minds about who this author is. Who is Jude? It's a common name. There are the obvious difficulties that existed within the early church of acceptance of Jude into the early canon. It was one of the disputed books. And there is, as you've noted, a very curious and to some a very troubling use of apocryphal literature. If the apocrypha, those extra secret writings that are not canon, not God's word, are acceptable to be used by God the Holy Spirit in a book like Jude, what are we to make of that and how do we understand it? Well, I think these questions, and there are others, I think offer us a very helpful uh, few lessons for us to consider this morning. The first is this, under the lessons from the difficulties of this book, God's word, we need to face this, is not neat and tidy and remove in and of itself any and all difficulties. The distance that we are from these books and when they were written often present very difficult questions for us. Sometimes we read God's word, we expect it to be self-explanatory, easy to grasp, but it's often not. Peter would be famously the one who said in his epistle, that some of the things that Paul wrote, he said, are very, very difficult. Now, that's one apostle saying of another that I don't understand Paul all the time. That's okay. That's okay. And so we need to face this immediately as we look at the, and we'll look at the questions. We'll study them. We'll look at them. We'll have answers for the troubles and the problems. But the first thing that confronts us is we need to understand God's word is not often as neat and tidy as we would like it to be. Several of the examples I've mentioned, apocryphal literature, they're not canonized books, but merely says that God is free This is part of the answer to this problem. God is certainly free by his spirit to take from those books. What would have been commonly known to the readers of Jude's day and to use them for his own purposes. And that seems to be exactly what he's doing in Jude. The the question of similarities to 2 Peter, does that undermine inspiration that one or the other is not really inspired of God? No, no. It doesn't undermine inspiration, no no more, no less than Jesus quoting from the Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament quoting freely and clearly from Old Testament scriptures. It's not wrong for Peter, probably written after Jude, 
to take from Jude to expand upon it. And if you read both side by side, it's amazing how similar they are. But Peter expands it and applies it differently in his day. What about the canon? Well, it was eventually, very clearly, received by the early church as receiving the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding the book and its contents. So that question, I think, falls away rather quickly. Here's the teaching of our confession in chapter 1 on these questions. All things in Scripture are not are not alike plain in themselves, nor are they alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means, that's this, the preaching of God's word, may attain unto sufficient understanding of them. Now, I hope as you heard me read Jude, you can say without, without hesitation that the gospel is very clearly in the book of Jude, very clearly in the book of Jude. The clear gospel is here and can be by any and all, by the blessing of the Spirit, be understood and to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. So those are the lessons I think we learn from the difficulties. That's more broad. Let me look secondly at the lessons that we understand and learn from the author, who is the author of Jude. He describes himself, Jude, or as some versions have it in the original, Judas. They were the same name. There are several of them that are listed in the Bible. Some count up to eight. Judas Iscariot, of course, is ruled out because he took his own life when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. There is another uh, disciple of Jesus named Jude. Luke 6.16 says, Judas, the son of James, or Jude, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. We see here that the Jude mentioned in this text identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Well, what of this James? Again, there are several options, and people have noted many of them. But it seems that if you look at them all, the best understanding of this cryptic salutation is that the James he mentions is none other than the James who is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ and the author of the book in the Bible that bears his name. Therefore, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus as well. We're told in Matthew 13, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, and so they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? You remember that the brothers and sisters of Jesus in those earlier days of his ministry did not believe Jesus to be the son of God. They thought he was out of his mind. They wanted him to leave this itinerant preaching ministry and just to come home and rest. 
that this is most likely the half-brother of Jesus now come to faith in him. What do we learn then about the author and from the author? We learn that the first, the gospel, is transformational, that it moves us from one place to another. Jude's life was taken up with mocking his brother, believing that he was again crazy and simply wanting him to retire into obscurity. But presumably, and we don't know the story, following the resurrection, Jude, like James, was converted by the power of God through the message of the gospel. And God, in his mercy, blessing James with great understanding and wisdom, would raise him up to be the very leader of the church in Jerusalem. You see that in Galatians 1 and Acts chapter 15. That James, who is the leader of the church, whose ruling is issued forth on behalf of the elders, is in fact the very brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this is the message. The faith which Jude is seeking to defend and seeking his readers to awake from their slumber to defend is a faith that transforms our lives. It takes us from darkness, Peter says, and brings us into the light. And that's what the gospel always does. It's transformational. And Jude is a testimony of that as he writes this very brief Catholic epistle. The second point, I think, is very important. And we don't want to overlook it and simply read over it. Humility is one of the chief marks of the Christian life. Both he and his brother James, the book that bears James's name, could have added to their popularity and acceptance by simply saying this, and we are the brothers of Jesus, our Savior. Neither of them do that. James, not in his epistle, Jude, not in his. But what does he say? He says, I'm a servant, a bondservant, a slave, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is used most often in the Old Testament, this word for his prophets and kings. It's used in the New Testament as a description of their calling as apostles. They saw themselves as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is fitting for us, all of us as believers, to identify ourselves as servants of the King of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the recent wedding of Jade and Seth, I had the wonderful privilege of meeting and talking with uh, their good friend, Andre Folks, who did marry Jade and Seth, as they are, I assume, now safely in Illinois. And we were talking uh, in that time of uh, our premarital counseling experiences and what kinds of things that we want to see regarding the young men who are coming to be married. He shared with me two things I'll never forget. It's very helpful. And I wholeheartedly agree. I didn't put it this way, but I said, yeah, that's what I look for too. He shared with me that the two primary things he looks for, the non-negotiables, if you will, these are the things he looked for in the man who came to marry his daughter, and he looks in every man who comes to be married. Number one, they must be teachable. They must be teachable. They must be willing to learn and to be teachable. And number two, they must be a man who knows he is under authority. They must be a man who knows 
that he is under authority. Young men, if I can tell you this morning, as you prepare to get married, no matter your age right now, those two are two of the finest examples of what we as pastors who love the Lord, who love his word, and who love the couples who come to be married, that we want you to possess, to be teachable, to be willing to be taught, to submit to teaching, and to know and to live as a man under authority. That's how Jude describes himself. He could have easily again identified himself as a half-brother of Jesus, granted great fame from that, but he came to understand himself through the transformation of the gospel that he was under that king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the term servant. That's how he understood himself. Let me ask you this morning, male or female, is that how you understand yourself this morning? It implies ownership, it implies duty, it implies loyalty to one who is greater than we are. This is who we are by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we take comfort in that truth? Is it a title and a privilege to wear that title proudly? Is it a status that governs our lives and our choices that we make every day? These are some of the questions I think we see as we look at this Second point, what lessons do we learn from the author himself? The third thing we see is this, what lessons do we learn from the recipients of the letter? Like most letters written in this time, Jude follows a very predictable pattern. And in fact, in the coming weeks, we'll sort of outline it in a very helpful way. But just this morning, look at the introduction. He introduces himself, who he is, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. He writes of his recipients, those to whom he is addressing the letter. They are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. He then offers them an initial sort of blessing, if you will. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then he goes through the body of his letter. And then he ends the letter with a great uh, blessing as well, a benediction, if you will, with respect to the blessing of God upon them. What do we learn from these recipients? I think there are several things we can learn, and we learn them from these passives. They are in the passive sense called beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. These are all things that are done for us, acted upon us. We are not the ones who enter into the love of God in ourselves. God has loved us first. We are not the one who keeps ourselves for Jesus. Jesus does that. And we are not the ones who call ourselves. God has called us. So these are the passives of the gospel. And we learn some important things. First of all, they were the called ones to those who are called. Now, this refers, I think, ultimately to what theologians call our effectual calling, not a general calling. All are called, few are chosen, Jesus said. But this calling is effectual. It actually brings us and unites us to Jesus Christ by grace and through faith. It's the calling of Romans chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called ones according to his purpose. That great promise in Romans 8.28 is for the called ones according to his purpose. He goes on to say they were foreknown by God. They were predestined by God that they might be conformed to the image of his son. And they were 
justified and they were glorified. This is the sense here that Jude uses this word. They are the called ones. It's the root and foundation of all the blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ. It's our calling by a sovereign choice and pleasure of God. But he doesn't stop there, does he? The second thing he says is they are beloved in God the Father. I'm not sure if you're using either the KJV or the New King James, why they translate this sanctified. It's not the word that's used. The word that's used is the perfect participle of agape or agapao, which is Greek for love, the love that is self-sacrificial, the love of God in Jesus. And the meaning is that these are those who are not only called, but they having been loved as well by God the Father. This is how Jude describes these believers, all believers. They are the loved of God. Now, I don't need to spend much time on this because we just studied it, didn't we? Jesus' own prayer for us in John 17, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's the same theme. It's the outworking of Jesus's prayer that these believers are those who have come to be loved by God the Father in the very same way to the same degree that he loves his only son. And don't miss this last one. It's really the heart of everything we studied in John 17, those who are kept for, and that's the best translation, kept for Jesus Christ. Not kept in, although that is true, but kept for. Not kept by, although that is true, but kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart, sanctified for Jesus As we said in John 17, a gift of love from the Father to the Son to be given later by the Son to the Father on the day of his coming in judgment. And he will not lose one of them, the gift that the Father has given, that are kept for Jesus. In John 6, he says, neither I nor the Father, no one can take them out of our hands, he says. I and the Father are one, he says. And so we are safe and kept for Jesus. It's what's behind Paul's words to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion unto the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19, or do you not know, he says. Listen to this, especially in our day and age and the culture in which we live, so defiled And so wicked in so many ways in this area of life, Paul writes, do you not know that your body, your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were what? You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, that's the the language of being kept for Jesus Christ. As a dowry is put aside and kept for the bride and the husband, so we are set apart, as it were, for Jesus as a bride, adorned for our glorious King and Savior. We belong to him, body and soul, all that we are. We're kept for him. 
And so he has exclusive rights over us. There's no other Lord, no other master, no other one who can dictate to us how we ought to live. There is only one voice we listen to, the voice of our Savior in his word. We're kept for him. Doesn't that remind us so much of the security we saw in John 17? You know, what Jude writes about are pretty dangerous things. These are dangerous times Jude is writing about. Just look at verse 4 with me. We'll look at it later. But just reading verse 4 gives you a sense of the danger of which Jude is speaking. For certain people, he says, have crept in, have come into you, into the church, through the doors of the church, kind of crept in. They've crept in unnoticed. Why? Because they weren't paying attention. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people, he says, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you see, these are dangerous times he's writing. And we live in no less dangerous times. But here's the point Jude makes in that we are kept for Christ We are secure in him. But this security, as we noted, is not a passive thing. Jude doesn't just leave us to rest in our security and assurance, as John 17 uh, reminds us that we are secure and assured in Christ. But he calls us to action in verse 3. He calls us to action in verses 20 and following. He uses language that involves the whole of our being, every part of our life, all the energy that we have. We are animated, he says. We're enlivened. We're made new and given strength. We're enabled to desire to do his will. This is what Jude is calling his readers to and what we will be called to through our study as well. So we learn these lessons. We do learn them. I trust we will as we study this. We learn them from the difficulties of the book, which are obvious, as I've stated, and we'll study them again. So don't be discouraged when you read your Bible. Don't be discouraged. It's not all alike easy to understand, and there may be questions you have about various things. That's why the Lord has given to his church pastors and teachers, elders, and those saints who are gifted in understanding the word of God. Ask, talk. Don't want to embarrass him, but I have a very good friend here in the church who comes up to me all the time. He says, you ever read the Bible? That's how he begins. You ever read the Bible? Tell me about this. And we talk. And we talk about what the Bible means, what it says. That's what we ought to do. And so he's given pastors and teachers to the church to ground the church, to lead them to maturity so that they would not be tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's better to talk. It's better to share your your questions and your concerns than to let them linger and cause them to undermine your trust in the one who has given you everything in Christ. And so don't be discouraged as you read this book or any book of the Bible And the lessons from Jude is our author. What a model for us, men and women alike. What a model to live as someone under the authority of a king. That is exactly what we are called to live. And I trust each of us this morning are seeking to live by his grace under his authority alone. And take the lessons from the recipients as well. That our security really is 
in Jesus Christ. But that security always leads us always to action. It always leads us to faithful service to our King. Our final hymn that we're going to sing this morning sort of brings all of this together, I think, in a wonderful way. Philip Doddridge captures in the words, the opening words of this hymn, what I think are really the theme of this study. He writes these words, Awake my soul, stretch every nerve, and press with vigor on a heavenly race demands your zeal. You and I are in a race, and we are called to run it with an aim to win it. That doesn't mean we cheat and do all kinds of things to just get first place. It means all together we're running this race, but we're doing it with vigor, with every nerve of our being and every amount of zeal that he gives to us. And so let us remember not only these things this morning, but as well as we face this very book, let us remember that we have always a Savior who is praying for us in this pilgrim journey and that we press on as brothers and sisters in the Lord through his grace alone. Let us pray. Father, this book will set before us a clear path of action. We will not simply sit back and take in wonderful truths that are comforts to our hearts and souls. That will be true. But the primary means, the primary focus of this book is a call to action. It's a call to men and women of a king who are called to live in this world in a different way. Not careless, not presumptive, not resting as it were, but rather always striving and with great energy to walk faithfully and in obedience to the king who has called us, whose servant we are. We ask your blessing upon all that we do in the coming weeks and even upon your word preached this morning, that you might bless it to our hearts and minds and to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.